Today on Understanding Immigration, the environmental impact of immigration. Many people were wondering, you know, why was this club, who is one of America's leading environmental clubs, taking such an open borders activist approach? You know, it is a fact that America's natural habitats would fare better with fewer people in the country. And since immigration is the primary driver of population growth in the U.S., this is really a no-brainer. Um, but you're not going to see the Center for Biological Diversity say that. It's just being used as a political excuse to oppose the wall and encourage more migration. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. This is Preston Hennekins from FAIR's lobbying team, and I'm joined as always by Matthew Tregesser from our press shop and Spencer Raley from our research department. For those listening for the first time, this is a podcast that seeks to educate our listeners on a wide array of important and high-profile topics on immigration in the United States. Uh, we try to break down complex immigration topics into plain terms. And we have a pretty interesting discussion for you today, the impact of immigration on the environment. This is a topic that has deep roots in the immigration reform movement, uh, and we're excited to share this conversation with you today. Obviously, other non-immigration-related factors play into protecting the environment as well. That really goes without saying. But since this is an immigration podcast, we're going to focus on how immigration policy can negatively impact the environment in our country. So, Matthew, let's start from the beginning. What do immigration and our country's environment have to do with each other? Thanks, Preston. So let me begin to mention that the relationship between immigration and the environment has been discussed for many years, you know, spanning several decades. Uh, but recently, ever since President Trump took office in 2016, it's kind of faded away a little bit and it's become one of the least discussed topics of public policy today. And this is due in large part to the influence of a group called the Sierra Club. And so I think it's important that we begin this podcast by discussing who exactly this group is and why they've shifted their stances on immigration and the environment um, over the past few decades. So for those listening, uh, the Sierra Club is one of America's largest nonprofit environmental groups in the entire country. And when they first originated, they once treated the effects of immigration-driven population growth as one of the most serious concerns facing uh, America's environment. But then they gradually shifted away from that argument um, and now have become essentially an open borders lobby group. So let's break down uh, the history briefly. Um, in 1980, so about four decades ago, uh, the Sierra Club had come out publicly saying that there was a direct relation between high levels of immigration and the environment. In fact, a representative from their club testified before the Federal Select Commission on Immigration and Refugee Policy stating, quote, it is obvious that the number of immigrants the United States accepts affects our population size and growth rate, end quote. But then, uh, about 16 years later, 1996, the club began to get uh, pressure from immigration activists. And the club and its board shifted to a more neutral position, uh, stating, quote, the board's actions reflect a desire to put the immigration debate to rest within the club and to focus on other pressing components of our population program, end quote. So now people are wondering, you know, why was there such a, a shift in their, in their stance towards immigration and the environment? Then after Trump, President Trump was elected into office in 2016, um, its executive director of the Sierra Club, Michael Bruhn, began to really take an activist approach towards uh, Trump's immigration policies. And he was very vocal about 
DACA recipients. He called out Trump's border wall, his zero tolerance policy, uh, deportation proceedings. And so many people were wondering, you know, why was this club, who is one of America's leading environmental clubs, taking such an open borders activist approach? And how do they shift their stance on the issue in just a few decades? Well, there's a lot of speculation as to why this was occurring. But one of them that's been proven is that obviously as a nonprofit that the club was receiving a lot of uh, donations or needed a lot of donations. And in the year 2000, the LA Times reported that an American businessman named David Gelbaum, who had donated at least $200 million to the club, had said if the club ever came out anti-immigration, that they would never get a dollar from me. So there's a clear picture here that the the donors to the organization were having a major influence on the Sierra Club. And so there's obviously a lot of other reasons why the Sierra Club shifted their stances, but a large part of it is due to the donors to the club. And obviously, through the many years of this public policy debate, large levels of immigration do have impacts on the environment. And so, you know, I, I want to hand it off to Spencer now and kind of talk about the data specifically on the relationship between these two. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. And yeah, just because the you know Sierra Club and a lot of other organizations shifted their stance to try to ignore the impact that immigration has on the environment didn't make the problem go away. Of course, it made it worse. So just want to start by throwing a few statistics out there. First of all, I think this is one that really just every time I mention it to people, it just, it just kind of blows their minds that the United States gains one net new migrant every 44 seconds. So you're adding an additional person through immigration to the United States, you know, more, more than one a minute, which is just, just, just mind blowing. And because of that, it's estimated that 90 to 95% of all future population growth in the United States will be from immigration. And the projection is that by 2060, there'll be roughly uh, 70 million foreign-born individuals in the United States compared to, and you can compare that to roughly 44.5 million in 2017 and only 9.6 million in 1970. And just in the next decade alone, it's estimated that more than 7 million immigrants will enter the United States. So essentially what you're seeing here is with no one to hold the federal government responsible outside of organizations like FAIR, the, all, all the hindrances, all the checks on immigrations have just, has just essentially been taken off. And what that unfortunately leads to is a lot of the immigration-related issues that we're seeing today. You know, first of all, if you look down at places where migrants are mainly moving right now, let's say, you know, southern Florida, Miami, uh, Fort Lauderdale, Naples, or if you go out west to the desert, Phoenix and, uh, you know, uh, Las Vegas, you see a lot of urban sprawl. And essentially, that's a, that's a fancy word for a city growing out instead of up. And typically, that's because there's very little planning or that uh, population growth is uh, occurring much faster than officials can plan for that. And of course, a lot of that is tied back to immigration. And a lot of people are just, you know, so what? You know, more people, we're a huge country. There are, there are countries that have a lot less uh, geographical area that have a lot more people. But again, it comes down to how do you plan for that population? If you don't do that, you're going to run into issues. For example, out in the desert, Phoenix and uh, Las Vegas specifically, 
they're actually giving large tax rebates back to homeowners if they'll cover their uh, yards in gravel instead of trying to grow grass because there's just not enough water. And that water is, you know, it's, it's probably the biggest, obviously most important commodity. And it's not unlimited, especially in areas where it's a little harder to obtain. So right. that's why organizations like FAIR, we, we, recommend, uh, we recommend a more still very generous but reasonable level of roughly 300,000 migrants per year. And that's not because we don't like migrants. We don't want to see people deserving people come to the United States. Rather, it's so that we can, in a way, catch our breath and begin to plan for future population growth in the United States in a responsible way. That way, you know, people can not only have a yard, but that they have enough water to drink so that we can plan uh, food growth. We don't necessarily have to rely too heavily on other nations for that. And so that we can respect the ecological resources we have around us by building our cities in a manner that doesn't abuse those, doesn't uh, decimate wildlife or, you know, encroach on uh, wetlands and that sort of thing. So that's why we want to, that's why we want to see immigration restricted to, to a number that allows us to plan around that. And then of course we can revisit that in the future and see where we're at. Right. And I, I think it's also important to note that, you know, a lot of people, uh, that are part of the open borders lobby to say, hey, you know, the United States is this massive country. Uh, there's a lot of rural areas. But what people don't understand is that a lot of these rural areas are used for our agriculture to feed, you know, our 330 million uh, population. In fact, um, according to World Bank data, 40% of all U.S. land area is used to support agriculture. And so, you know, there may not be people living in these areas, but if you start taking that away, you know, it affects the food supply, perhaps the water supply. Um, and so you can't just because there's open area doesn't mean that that should allow people to move into those areas. And to, to kind of go back on Spencer's point too, you know, that we might have tons of, you know, of agricultural land or, you know, open spaces, but that's not where people want to move to. And we, you know, you don't see people rushing to move into Nebraska. Um, especially, you know, immigrants, both legal and illegal, they're moving to where the jobs are. And that's usually around large cities. And so that's why you do see cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix and Miami have, you know, these huge urban sprawls because people want to go where jobs are. Yeah. And just to kind of just to kind of build on that point a little bit, you know, we already see, you know, that for example, the entire national park system was designed in order to protect critical and resources in some of America's most beautiful areas because, you know, urban areas were starting to encroach on that. And, you know, just because the United States has a lot of population, again, or a lot, a large geographical area, again, doesn't necessarily mean that it's all inhabitable. You know, it's amazing. It's an amazing feat that cities like Las Vegas and Phoenix exist. Much of the Midwest where people, you know, like to point and say, hey, see, we have plenty of room for future population growth. You know, those are mountains and deserts and you need those middle of the country areas to support a food chain you know to 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 grow crops to uh, you know put cattle on and to you know raise other livestock and yeah if you just look at some of the largest or in some of the fastest growing cities you know such as dallas fort worth houston down in texas or if you go to the north places like you know chicago in the middle of the country you you look at those areas 20, 30 years ago, 
compared to today. And there are literally millions of acres of farmland that are no longer available because they had to grow out because they had huge influxes of population that they weren't planned for. And of course, another effect of that that I think uh, impacts all of us, especially those of us that live in the D.C. area, is you have population growing faster than you can build your roads. You know, these areas where uh, migrants flock to and where people are flocking to because the economy is good, roads can't keep up. So you have kind of this eternal construction, which further fuels traffic, which in part also keeps cars on the road longer, producing more CO2 and harming the environment more. Right. I think also going off your point, Spencer, um, there is an impact on the animals in the environment, especially endangered species. In fact, the uh, the Center for Biological Diversity um, listed the top 10 U.S. species being driven to extinction are related to overpopulation. And so this is animals like the Florida panther, the log loggerhead sea turtle. I mean, these are, it, it's a smaller kind of argument, but it's, you know, there are a lot of endangered species within the United States and urban sprawl and, and you know, constructing roads and other housing developments are, are wiping these endangered species out. But it's something that the open borders lobby doesn't really want to talk about, but yet they'll talk about how the border wall is actually affecting, you know, the endangered species in our country. Yeah, and that's a great point to bring up the Center for Biological Diversity, because they're one of the groups that has come out strongly against the border wall. And they, you know, they cite, uh, and this is a direct quote from their website, Trump's wall would harm border communities perpetuate human suffering, destroy thousands of acres of habitat, and halt the cross-border migration of dozens of animal species. And yet they're completely ignoring the fact that millions of additional people per year into the country causes many of those same issues. You know, it is a fact that America's natural habitats would fare better with fewer people in the country. And since immigration is the primary driver of population growth in the U.S., this is really a no-brainer, but you're not going to see the Center for Biological Diversity say that. And just to kind of build on that point a little bit, something that a lot of these organizations uh, like to ignore, again, because for whatever reason, they want to focus more on the political aspect of immigration instead of what they were bounded to do, which was you know, protect the environment. They talk about Trump's wall as a complete, like a complete wall across the entire border. And I don't think anybody, you know, who promotes the border wall looks at that as a realistic reality. And many, if not, I would say the vast majority of these species that these organizations are concerned about being able to cross freely between the border do so in terrain and in areas where there is unlikely to be a border wall. And if there is, there are easy concessions that can be made to allow the movement of wildlife anyway. You're talking about, you know, very mountainous terrain, areas out in the desert where, you know, where, where traffic across the border is relatively low anyway, or along places like the Rio Grande where it's it's unlikely that a large wall will be built due to, you know, there already being a uh, due there already being a river there. So a lot of, a lot right. of that is an unfounded concern in the first place. Mm-hmm. And even with in areas with a border wall, um, I've read studies, uh, one in particular, the Nature Conservancy that they have said that you can put something called cat holes, which are the size of about a piece of, you know, white paper. Um, and you put this at the bottom of the fencing and that allows animals, smaller animals to still pass through areas of the border wall, but also, you know, doesn't allow people or vehicles to cross through the border wall. So there are ways to adapt the border wall to, you know, make sure that wildlife and animals can still 
cross between, you know, Mexico and the U.S. But um, yeah, again, it, it's another unfounded argument by the left saying that the border wall is going to create this devastation to the environment. Yeah. And just just one more point on that. Again, the argument here should be how do we make a border wall and secure the border in such a way that we can still protect the environment, not necessarily there's a chance that if it's done wrong, it will harm the environment. Therefore, we shouldn't do it at all. And if you look out uh, a number of places in Europe where they built, you know, large mega highways through areas with, you know, either threatened or endangered species, they've come up with a wealth of ways to allow wildlife to continue their their migration quarters across, you know, those areas. Whether it's, you know, I've seen everything from uh, from land and water bridges to tunnels for animals to cross to go across to you know designated areas and just just uh there are a lot of creative things you can do to get around this problem it's not a well we're at a you know we're at a spot where we can't move forward therefore we need to oppose this rather it's just being used as a political excuse to oppose the wall and encourage more migration right and another element that we haven't discussed yet is the mere presence of a border wall is going to deter the tens of thousands of migrants who try to enter the country illegally. And during that process where they're, you know, they're migrating um, to the U.S.-Mexico border, they're leaving behind a lot of trash. And, you know, whether it's from water bottles or just food or anything, basically. And this becomes such a problem, especially in Arizona, that the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality has estimated that over 2,000 tons of trash are discarded at the Arizona border every year. And the Center for Immigration Studies actually did a study on this, on the correlation of border apprehensions in Arizona and the trash found in Arizona along the border. And there was a direct correlation. You know, when they, when Arizona experienced more than 120,000 border apprehensions uh, in fiscal year 2011 and 2012, there was more than 65,000 pounds of border trash being collected annually there. But then in the ensuing years, when apprehensions fell to as low as 70,000, uh, border trash collections also dropped to a mere 19,000 pounds. So uh, there's a direct correlation there. And it's, you know, not really an argument highlighted by anyone, but it, it, it is uh, a legitimate thing happening. You know, people are traveling, they're going to be bringing items with them. And, you know, with the border wall being present, it's going to deter people from making the trip in the first place to the border. So yeah, it, it's a big problem that's really gone unnoticed. Now, I want to kick it to Preston here. Has Congress done anything to address this issue? I know it's maybe not one of their largest priorities, but they have to be doing something, right? You know, you you would think they, they would be, but uh, of course they are not. In fact, you know, the last serious effort by Congress to study the environmental impact of immigration uh, was all the way back in 2004 when former Representative Tom Tancredo introduced H.R. 3992 uh, in the 108th Congress. And this bill was very simple. All it did was it would amend the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 uh, to require pretty much impact statements regarding the environment and the impact that legal and illegal immigration has on it. And, you know, that was something that's not currently in the act. So, you know, for instance, when we, you know, when the federal government builds something, they have to do environmental impact statements by saying, oh, you know, if we build this federal building here, this is what we can expect. And, you know, people were kind of asking, well, what about you know, some of the biggest, you know, social and economic policies 
you know, that we've passed in the past few years, which is related to immigration. You know, we're bringing in millions of people every year through legal immigration, through guest workers, and, you know, indirectly through uh, illegal immigration. So why wouldn't we have the government study this and come out with an impact statement about immigration? And of course, this went nowhere. Uh, you know, it was referred to a committee and then never you know, no, no votes were ever put out on this. Um, and it was never reintroduced, but you know, something as small as that would go, I think a long way to show both sides of the debate, how much immigration does impact the environment. And then, you know, kind of just closing out on that issue is any legislation that reduces the number of people coming into our country every, every year is going to have an impact of some kind on the environment. You know, there is no question that immigration is one of the biggest contributors to population growth in the United States. And there's no question that population growth in the United States contributes to the degradation of our environment. These two issues are related, regardless of what activist groups on the other side will tell you. So any any kind of structural change to our immigration system that reduces the number of people coming in every year is going to have a positive impact on the environment and you know it's it's sad that you know we are one of the only groups uh that are saying that and and you know we look forward to hopefully a day when the environmental advocacy groups can go back to what their founders and what a lot of their you know initial donors and supporters believed um, but I'm sure that's a long way away. Um, but, you know, guys, I think, you know, that's all the time that we've had today. I think this was a really great conversation. And I hope that our listeners have learned something new uh, about the environment and its importance to the immigration reform movement. Uh, and frankly, you know, how important immigration reform is to the environment and the future of our country. Uh, as a reminder, we're going to be releasing a new episode every other Monday. Please recommend Understanding Immigration to your friends by sharing this podcast on Facebook uh, and Twitter. Episodes are available on most platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Uh, you can also visit our website, fairus.org, and our Twitter handle at Fair Immigration to access episodes. We hope that everyone is staying safe during these times. Uh, and until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR.